0: You are listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Barry Bloom, Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and former dean of the school, and William Hanage, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, December 22nd. Dr. Hanage, would you like to go ahead?
1: Hi, yeah. Hello, everyone. I want to start by wishing people compliments of the season and to explain that some just something which if you could include in your reporting, I think it'd be really good. I'm not only wearing this hoodie because Nicole sometimes refers to me as Professor Hoodie, but because it's a charity thing, which is for local businesses, local restaurants that have been hard hit in order to help the people who are working there. So anything you can do to help people if restaurants are closed where you are, or indeed to encourage people to get takeout and so on, is something that will be a really good thing in terms of helping people survive the next few months financially as well as in terms of public health and with that i'll just um get straight into the questions
0: all right great and uh as you are answering those questions i'll check in with dr bloom again um and if this is a vaccine related question and uh we can just hop back to that one um when dr bloom is on the call uh first question uh, thank you. I, I have a kind of a year and well first I think we all want to know what you think about this new variant, but um, My my personal question is uh, and I'm sorry this asked for a sound bite on a very complex topic, but um, If what would be at the very top of your list of what we absolutely must do to prepare for the next pandemic. Thank you Good Lord <laughs> No, sorry.
1: <laughs> and the next pandemic. Um, you know, we we have we have a pandemic to get through already. Um, I think that probably it is a very general thing, but learn from mistakes because we have made mistakes. We have made a lot of mistakes. Um, we have failed to put in place a bunch of no regrets forward planning in which we say, if these things happen, then we do this and you know, learning from previous experiences. Instead, we've been in a situation where we have been arguing and where we have you know, allowed ourselves to be caught in a bunch of reversals, a rudderless pandemic response, basically, internationally. So there is a, that's a global issue. And I think that a global state of preparedness for the next pandemic is something that we should work towards. And the first thing to do there is to acknowledge the mistakes that we have made in this. I think that's a I think that's fairly um straightforward and important. The other thing that I would add, and I think that you I think you all will understand where I'm coming from in this, it has been tremendously difficult in terms of those reversals dealing with the struggle in terms of Maintaining public communication and scientific communication, including the trusted sources that you can rely upon to give you the best, most up to date information about the state of the pandemic and that are capable of changing their mind if you know if and when scientific evidence changes. So I think that that sort of thing would be tremendously helpful Um, as much as anything else also public education that will help. But there's that old line, I can't remember the old line. Barry may be able to remember it um, properly and where it comes from. But okay. it's like, you know, before the pandemic hits, everything will seem like an overreaction, and after it, everything will seem like an underreaction. And I think that we're probably seeing that right now. Great.
0: Thank you. And about the new variant?
1: Um, I would... So, the new variant. I mean, I will start by just giving a little bit of my background information about it, and then we can get more pointed questions. So, uh, the new variant, or to give it its proper name, no. hi Barry, to give it its proper name, B one one seven. That just refers to the particular part of the phylogenetic tree in which you find it. Um, was identified last month in the southeast of the United Kingdom through genomic epidemiology, which means that the United Kingdom has been doing an amazing job sequencing a huge proportion, or well, relatively huge proportion of its infections, around about 5%. And this led them to identify a cluster of over 100 infections which were anomalously closely related. It was just weird to see them closely, a group of infections that are so closely related. And also quite different from the other circulating viruses. And a bunch of features about that, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, including the fact that one of the mutations within this variant actually makes it easier to detect using standard testing, has led the authorities there to be able to track it and estimate its rate of increase as being substantially larger than the the average for the virus. It has a number of important features, including A large number of, it has a large number of mutations, Um, not a single mutation, but a large number of them, 23 in comparison to its most, um, um, 23 additional mutations in comparison over the kind of background. And these are in regions that are thought to be important in terms of interacting with the human host and possibly the immune system. And as a result, this is the reason taken together of why we are considering this variant to be of concern. And there is a lot of things that we don't know about it. And I'm happy to sort of talk about what they are. Um, But I will comment that the state of knowledge about this is rapidly evolving. Um, And I just read that wasn't an intended pun. But uh, the information about this is rapidly evolving. But I can tell you stuff about what we know now.
0: Are you all set? Uh, Yes, thank you very much. Okay. Uh welcome Dr. Bloom. Do you have any opening remarks that you'd like to say real quick?
2: No thanks just an apology for being late.
0: It's all right. Considering we we're supposed to be off today, we appreciate you being here. Uh, next question Yes, thank you. Um, here in Kansas, uh, the vaccinations in nursing homes start um, next Monday. So I was wondering if you could um, fill me in on, should everyone in nursing homes get the vaccine? Or you know, do we know at this point that there are some people who should not based on their underlying conditions? And once people get vaccines in nursing homes, is it safe for family to come back in again? Or do we need to wait longer, wait till family members get vaccines, et cetera?
2: Uh terribly good question. Um, as far as I am aware, the intent is to take people at highest risk um, and protect them with the vaccine. And those are people with the same kinds of predisposing conditions uh, that people worry about. And as far as I'm aware, there are no limitations uh, on who should get vaccinated in nursing homes, provided that someone can provide um, um, a signature indicating that they understand what uh, is uh, what they're receiving. So I don't think there's a, a concern about that. Um, I think the issue of when people can visit will probably vary from place to place. There are no regulations as far as I'm aware from uh, the CDC. Uh, but um, once people are vaccinated, I think people have to everyone has to recognize, even if they're 95% protective and Moderna was less than that in people over age 75, we're still going to have to be very careful of bringing uh, people who might be uh, transmitting virus with asymptomatic infection into any place with vulnerable people, whether it's nursing homes or hospitals. So it means uh, people being tested, people wearing masks, And obviously, if everybody's vaccinated, it reduces the chances of any uh, transmission. My guess is most nursing homes um, will uh, be cautious. And until the people that want to visit um, after two shots uh, and are found to be unlikely to be um, infectious, um, they will be cautious about. Uh, bringing visitors back in. I would also point out that the vaccines are not just for the residents, but also for the people who serve in various uh, capacities uh, within nursing homes, which I think is a really good um, recommendation that maintains both safety and some degree of equity.
1: Yeah, I would add to that, Um, That nursing homes are an area where the consequences of introduction are so great that it's going to be some time before I think that we are able to That we will not be clicking our fingers and returning to normal with vaccination. In fact, that's a that's a general point and I would think that what Barry said there was incredibly important because There is not a silver bullet to deal with this. Instead, there are multiple interventions. And one of the most important is a vaccine, but it's not the only one. So if you have the vaccine and masking and other interventions, then we can gradually start to move from the situation we're in now to a better place.
0: Are you all set? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Next question.
3: Nicole, thank you. Gentlemen, thank you as always. Dr. Hanage, I'd like to start with, could you go into some more detail about this new strain? I mean, you talked about 23 mutations detected so far. Is that 23 new strains, 23 mutations in the
1: new strain? It's 23 in the new variant. I'll call it a variant because um, I I think that to call it a strain, we we require more details about characterizing it and its properties. But they're all 23 within this single lineage. And that's one of the things which makes it look, frankly, unusual. It leaps out like a sore thumb. The reason that is, is that you can look at a virus and you can basically estimate how many mutations you expect it to have, based on the amount of time that has passed since the outbreak began, because this is what's called a molecular clock. You assume that the virus accumulates mutations at a specific rate. However, this, and we've estimated that rate for SARS-CoV-2, this particular variant has about 20 more than you would expect given the time when it emerged and when it was first detected. It was first detected in the middle of September. It is currently responsible for around 60, 70% of new cases in the southeast of England. So that's a very rapid increase from the point when it was first detected. And that together with these large number of mutations, eight of which are mutations in the spike protein, which mediates attachment to the receptor, and there are a couple of deletions there as well. These, these are taken together with a rapid increase, caused to be somewhat anxious about this and its properties, which, as I said, are still being defined. It is an open question as to why this variant has accumulated so many mutations. Since it was detected, it has it has continued to accumulate them at the normal rate. But the excess suggests a period of time in a different selective environment, meaning not the normal transmission between between normal um, individuals that has been responsible for the great majority of the pandemic. Some of the characteristics of the new variant are shared in common with long-term chronic infections in individuals with compromised immune systems and that is one hypothesis for what might have happened ordinarily you would expect selection in that environment for a variant of the virus which does very well within the host and does not transmit and so that's just one of the things which is still not understood and which we're trying to wonder we're trying to figure out what happened but it certainly suggests a period of time in a different selective environment but what that was exactly We don't know.
2: Yeah, I could chip in a question that uh, a lot of people are asking, but you haven't yet asked, um, which is the question of um, whether the mutations in this new strain um, suggest that the virus will be able to escape the immune responses generated by the vaccine. And uh, the answer is, of course, one, nobody really knows. That's predicting something that hasn't yet happened. As I understand it, they have tested uh, this new strain with serum from people who have been vaccinated and, um, or animals either way and shown that it is perfectly capable of being neutralized uh, by neutralizing antibodies to the standard uh, vaccine uh, spike protein. So that's very comforting. I think the other thing that's comforting is um, because the vaccines are targeted at the region of the spike protein, or at least the the spike protein, a region of which is required for binding to the host cell receptor, the virus has relatively little wiggle room to make mutations to escape antibodies because if they do it too dramatically and cleverly, They'll escape antibodies. They'll also escape being able to bind to the host cell receptors, and they'll compromise their ability to get into cells. And one of the striking things about this mutation is that one of the places in that mutation appears to have been a mutant in the binding site that actually increases the binding that may contribute to why this is uh, having a better survival effect. If the mutation was one that compromised binding uh, to antibody, but also compromised binding to the cell, it wouldn't survive very long in the competition of other strains. So there is a constraint on how wildly this virus can mutate to be able to escape antibodies. Someday that might happen, uh, but it doesn't seem likely early on. And another reason why that is true is that there's a big difference between when we make a host immune response and we treat someone with a monoclonal antibody. Um, uh, An example, measles virus is neutralized by essentially serum from anybody in the world. You take serum from anywhere in the world, add it to measles virus, there's an antibody in there since almost everybody had measles that will neutralize the virus. Any single monoclonal against the appropriate antigen will produce a mutant in a week. And what that says is that even if one piece of the binding site is mutated, you have antibodies to other parts of the binding site. So the probability of having mutants that escape all the various antibodies of high and low specificity and affinity of escaping a whole range of antibodies that every Herman being makes Um, is remarkably low, Uh, very different than would be the case if we made only one antibody to one determinant. So the hope is that the vaccines will work for quite a long time. There is a likelihood someday that this will lose the ability of the vaccine strain to induce neutralizing antibodies. And the beauty of these new virus vaccine platforms is with very little effort, and my guess is the work is already underway. People are putting uh, genes from the new variant into the platform so that if it did uh, seem to be more resistant uh, to antibodies generated by vaccines, they would have in the icebox vaccines against the new variant strains that are worrying. And that's something that could not have been done Without the new platform. So there is an awful lot of thought going into trying to keep these vaccines updated to be as effective as possible.
0: Uh,
4: next question.
5: Hello, hi. Thank you for uh, for this conference. I have uh, two questions. The uh, first question is a follow up question to uh, uh, Dr. Bloom's answer. Uh, so you said that basically the new platform enables to uh, Basically, to upgrade vaccines very fast and create a new vaccine uh, which are active against uh, mutations. But uh, if uh, a new vaccine is is created, does uh, that uh, to, to go through all the um, all the um, uh, test stages like uh, toxicology, effectiveness again, or it is already approved for for any other um, um, utilization? And the second question is: there is a lot of emphasis on vaccines. But um, I wonder if uh, uh, the governments and and pharmaceutical companies should also uh, invest a little bit more on on drugs, Uh, given the fact that uh, the vaccines will not be available to uh, the whole global population for uh, at least uh, one year to come. So I'm wondering why they they wouldn't couple vaccine with a drug strategy to protect people who cannot be vaccinated uh, in the next month. And also, I was told, but uh, you can confirm, that drugs uh, can not only prevent the disease, but they can prevent the infections. So they are a little bit uh, on a more advanced line uh, in uh, in, uh, in the in the in the protection against um, yeah the coronavirus.
2: Um, I think I can answer um, uh, to some extent the first part of the question. I'm not sure I understand fully the intent of the second part. Um, the question, the first question is if there were a variant that. Uh, antibodies generated by vaccines were less effective against, Um, would you have to go through the whole rigmarole of 30,000 people tested in randomized controlled trials for a period of time as the virus is uh, perhaps more threatening um, by simply updating the uh, RNA to cover uh, the new variant Uh, strain, or if it's uh, an adenovirus vaccine that's ever approved, that you could put the new spike protein into the new platform for adenoviruses? The answer is, I don't think that has been formally discussed and agreed to by anyone. The FDA would be the one that has to decide. But we have a very good precedent. And the precedent is there are influenza strains that arise, as you know, every year, at quite different strains. So that very often the vaccine that worked last year or two years ago isn't going to be effective against a new strain that comes from China or Australia or elsewhere. And the FDA has dealt with that by saying, if all the production procedures are identical to the ones that have worked for the previously approved vaccines, then with minimal safety data showing that the new construct for the new strain is as safe in, um, uh, in vitro experiments and has the right properties in safety in animal experiments. Um, it can simply be added to the list of new vaccines for flu without going through enormous amounts of human randomized control trials. So I would expect in the case, if there were a variant that was less affected by the vaccines against the current strain, as long as the RNA platforms and the companies did the same things, uh, they would have very little difficulty in getting rapid approval to put them out. On the second question, I don't know if I understood the question, how do you protect people while we're still taking an enormous amount of time to roll out the vaccine to any to everyone? And at the moment, I don't think we have a way to do that. Uh, there are compounds that have reported chemical structures that are reported to compete for um, the binding site, uh, similar to antibodies. They haven't been in clinical trials yet. We don't know anything about their adverse effects or how well they would work compared to antibodies. And I don't know of any other drugs that would guarantee uh, the people not able to get a vaccine would be protected a priori. Well, just a, um,
5: a short follow-up question. Actually, I mean, I'm in touch with uh, with uh, a few researchers uh, in the U.S. and Europe, which are. Uh, are developing um, a drug against uh, COVID-19. And uh, their drugs, I think it's uh, in, the, in the phase two of, uh, of the clinical trials. And it seems it's, it's, uh, it works quite good. The thing is that uh, governments, uh, they are not putting as much money on drugs as they did on, they did on, on vaccines. So we, if you have uh, less money, you, have, uh, <laughs> you need to invest more time to develop something. So I was wondering if you think that uh, the government should have invested also in drugs. So far, there is only GDA at which is a, a food, at least in Europe and US.
2: Uh, I can't speak for your government, I can speak for our government. There <laughs> is, in fact, a significant increase in investment for drug development um, at various levels of preventing uh, infection and in preventing disease and preventing death. And uh, thus far, we haven't seen an awful lot that looks particularly promising in animal models. So you may have access to information of a drug that is more promising than anything that I know about. Uh, But as I like to say to my students, I do vaccines, not drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
3: Thank you.
0: Next question.
3: Thanks very much. I have two questions. The first one is, whether either of you have an opinion or a take on the um, approach that ACIP has taken to uh, vaccine allocation in the United States, where it seems like they're trying to both balance uh, limiting deaths and limiting the spread in the choices of two groups that they make. Um, is that a good approach you think they've taken just in general uh, or you know how should vaccine allocation be, be done? Let me ask Bill to comment and then
2: I'll have some comments
1: yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting one. There's always the issue that arises with any new vaccine of whether or not you vaccinate the people most at risk or the people who are most likely to be doing the transmitting. And that is being, that decision is being made at the moment within the context that we are not altogether clear although there is some evidence from the um, there are some evidence from moderna when they went to give the second dose, uh, that the Moderna vaccine is, uh, as to whether or not the va- Moderna vaccine is able to prevent transmission, uh, infection in the first place, as well as developing disease. The, But we don't actually know necessarily very well for the mRNA vaccines, the extent to which it prevents the development of severe disease or the development of transmission. I suspect Barry knows more about that than I do. Um, obviously, if you are trying to prevent If you have a vaccine which can prevent transmission, then it makes more sense to give that to people who may be doing a lot of transmitting um, than it would to give a vaccine that does not be very effective preventing transmission. So ACIP is trying to balance that. I suspect Barry has more insights into um, into what's been going on in their thinking. I would point out, however, that over time, it's quite interesting to note that the individuals who have been most at risk and you know, the characteristics of the communities that have been doing most transmission have changed quite markedly. I mean, if if only because in the fact in the spring it was the high density populations in the Northeast that were most um, severely affected. But that's because that's where it happened. It's not necessarily that high density populations are more likely to get infected. And so you need to be thinking about a number of these issues as you're trying to roll things out. But at the moment, it's just a question of most vulnerable and most likely to be involved in transmission and the attraction between them. And then I'll look at and hear what Barry has to say and, and look forward to being educated.
2: Um, let me just start by saying, you know, this is a really vexed question. You have a limited supply uh, at, of, a, uh, of a vaccine that has the potential to keep people from dying um because both vaccines have been shown to have dramatically improved uh protection against severe disease um uh, there was in in one of the trials of uh, a slew of people with severe disease only one was in the vaccine group for example um so uh the challenge is how does one equitably uh, distribute that? And um, I, I would say these are really hard decisions. I think the CDC came up with um, a fair set of rather general recommendations. Um, clearly the category number one, the top category was the most vulnerable since 40% of all deaths are in people over 75 years of age Um, uh, clearly that is the most high risk group that was targeted. And the second is while people who work in hospitals that deal with COVID patients do not, because of protective equipment, have the highest death rates, Um, if they get sick and they are getting sick, um, uh, the hospitals can't function and we're back to where we were to bending the curve. Because people, as you know now in the Midwest, people are beginning to talk about how to set up priorities of who gets to get a hospital bed and who gets sent home um, to die. And those are things that I would never have imagined we'd have to contemplate, contemplate. We are contemplating that now. So protecting hospital staff was why the everybody and I think every state has agreed with the first category. The one disagreement at the at the uh, ACIP meeting was one um, member of the committee who looked at the um, death rates and severe disease, uh, sorry, hospitalization rates for people 65 and over versus 75 and over, and they're about the same. And his objection only was that the 65-year-olds and over should have been included in the in the first group, So that seems to me a quite reasonable set of arguments. And I think the basis for the CDC or the ACIP was that we just don't have that many vaccines to expand initially to that large a number of, uh, of groups. The more difficult challenges come when you go beyond that to the issue of essential workers And that's a much more arbitrary decision than an age cutoff. Um, And so that's been defined as people who work face-to-face directly in contact with people who may be transmitting HIV. And that's, again, people who work in hospitals and health centers at the first line that are uh, before even individuals know whether they're positive or not, are likely to have contacts. And then, obviously, balancing those people to prevent them getting infected is the people um, who are likely to have the most severe illness if they do get infected, which was the comorbidity uh, argument of people of a younger age group uh, with comorbidities. Every state that has a advisory, two things, Massachusetts has an, a, an advisory committee on vaccines, which I have to say is one of the most extraordinarily inspiring groups of people I've ever worked with. People from religious groups, mayors of a town, uh, heavily at, uh, burdened by COVID, uh, representatives of uh, minority groups and underprivileged groups, and uh, Uh, districts and towns that are burdened with infection all across the state. And these are hard issues to debate. And I think the good faith and the listening and the willingness to think through how to decide hard priorities is very inspiring to me and my scientific colleagues. And we've learned a great deal from that, uh, just listening to what the needs are in different communities. And uh, one of the recommendations for lower groups has to do with a uh, social vulnerability index that has been created, that has been uh, proposed for consideration by CDC that takes account of the increased vulnerability of crowded and uh, economically disadvantaged and uh, often racially um, uh, increased groups. And at the same time, uh, we have data that shows which districts in the state have the greatest burden as of this week or last week um, to disease. And a melded picture has been put together to when vaccines come into any age or other category that 20% of those would go to that group that is regarded as most vulnerable. So that. All I'm trying to suggest is deciding who gets vaccines first and second is really an emotionally and intellectually very grinding decision. And the experience that I have is if you bring people of goodwill and different perspectives together, you make a better decision. And I am stunned that the majority of states in the U.S. do not have advisory committees of scientists and laymen and public officials actually weighing in on that. And I don't know who's making the decisions on priorities in those states.
1: I'm going to echo that. And I'm, going to, um, and I'm going to just point out something, which is, I think, a story which could do with more reporting, which is kind of remarkable. Um, Barry just mentioned the Dakotas and the fact that they've been getting to the point where really horrific clinical decisions of the kind he mentioned, who's going to be given a hospital bed and who's going to be sent to die at home are being made um north dakota is currently fourth in the nation among states for per capita mortality and almost all of that happened since the start of october so this is um a place which has been aware of the virus which actually witnessed what happened in the northeast and in the south over the summer and has still undergone a very rapid surge of infections and has gotten to the place where it is now i just i'm Staggered that that happened and I'm staggered that it has been allowed to happen in various parts of the country and then I'll shut up and talk about other stuff.
3: I did have a follow up question and which was wondering if you had any advice for us as reporters in describing the effectiveness of the vaccines that come up here it's it's often said 94.1% effective. And then people uh, push back on uh, Twitter, what does that mean Uh, what's the difference between saying they're effective versus efficacious, for example. And how should we report that? And you know, should we be pointing out that the people who were in these trials were wearing masks and socially distancing? It's, it's not like they were running around and diving into pools of COVID nineteen to to test them.
2: Oh my God, that's a really tough question. These are really very tough questions. Um, um, <laughs> so, in in the world of reporting vaccine. Uh, efficacy and effectiveness, a distinction is made, uh, and and a valid distinction, between vaccine effectiveness as defined in randomized controlled trials. uh, Sorry, vaccine efficacy in randomized controlled trials and vaccine effectiveness, which refers to real life, real world Uh, ability of vaccines to prevent whatever the endpoint is, infection or disease. There's a classic example that makes it clear um, of a vaccine against um, typhoid uh, that was tested in a major vaccine center on college uh, students in the United States that was found uh, many years ago to be 85% protective. It was then put in the field in Thailand, where it was found to be 65% protective because these people were just in a different state of health, different state of nutrition, different state of exposure than healthy young college students in a country that doesn't have or see typhoid fever. So the trial results are... uh, uh, um, Uh, efficacy data and effectiveness data is what we will learn once this vaccine is put out. And there is tracking of who gets the vaccine and what percentage of them over time in the real world. And we will learn that there'll be variations in effectiveness in different communities uh, that will be somewhat different, I hope not very different than those in the trial. But we don't know until it's actually put out into the real world. Does that help at all?
3: That's that's helpful. I just need to know how to think about it. Thanks very much, guys. Sorry to take so much of your time.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, next question. Hi, um, can you hear me all right? Yep. OK, great. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, some people are suggesting giving one dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines instead of two so that double the number of people can get vaccinated. Uh, so, what are the possible risks and benefits of doing this? And what is your opinion on whether or not it should be done?
1: I'm very curious. To, I'm very curious to hear what Barry thinks about this.
2: Um, uh, this I do have my
1: case. own thoughts, but I'll go, You can go first.
2: Okay, if you want me to go first, I'll stick my neck up. Um, we're in a circumstance of um, a major problem and an enormous skepticism about vaccines. We have real-life data on over 45 or 50,000 people who have received either of two of these vaccines um, and what the effect is of a prime immunization and a boost. And we know in childhood vaccines that one shot doesn't do very well. It does something, um, and we know that if you give kids boosters at the appropriate times in age, you expand the number of antibody-producing cells, you expand the diversity of antibodies produced, and you expand the affinity, the uh, uh, binding activity of antibodies with boosters. So. If you were a vaccine company that wanted to prevent liability and wanted to protect as many people as possible, you would optimize the conditions under which you put the vaccines out. And the companies have done that with different times for boosting based probably on imperial evi- empirical evidence or a good yes, rather than real data, whether 21 days for the boost or 28 days. In one of the trials, there is evidence of partial protection between the priming dose and the boosting dose, uh, dose, uh, suggesting that the vaccine was effective on people who were um, um, asymptomatic and didn't develop disease over the three or four week period uh, that was being studied. We have data on the effectiveness for about six months, five months of the two-shot vaccines for both during the trials. And those are the only real data we have that would tell people this is something that we can predict. If you've got protection for six months, uh, you'll probably have, most of you, protection for a year. We don't know anything about how long or how uh, strong the immune response would be from a single vaccine. Absolutely. Dose. And um, if scientists start guessing what the evidence should be, as opposed to building on evidence, um, it may save uh, more lives in the short run. But then we come into a very sticky problem, which is when it wears off, how will we know it wears off? We know getting someone back for a booster shot for any vaccine 21 or 28 days later is going to be one hell of a challenge. If we give one-shot vaccines now and then decide at six months it isn't working very well and the people who thought they were protected took risks, went out into crowded places and are now coming down, A, we will inform the public that the vaccine didn't work, and that people who take the vaccines are not really being protected. And when you try to find people six months or a year later, you're not going to find them. So on purely scientific credibility grounds, I would go with what the data we know about that we're explaining to people uh, that we're confident about will provide a certain degree of protection with a certain degree of risk. And I wouldn't speculate uh, on scientific grounds of what might happen if we had a single shot vaccine. Uh, I think it could be very difficult six months or a year from now if we find that it doesn't work very well. And the last point I would say is that I think people don't always appreciate. Everybody gets the same vaccine, but the duration of immune responses in individuals for any vaccine varies extraordinarily widely. It's a wide Curve from people who fall off from the coronavirus virus in uh, 2003, for example, uh, some of them had antibodies that lasted a year or two, and others had antibodies from the same vaccine at 18 years later. And there's no way to predict who's going to have an antibody that persists and who not. So I would think, on scientific grounds, you want to maximize the effectiveness. To protect people, for sure, as best you can, and also to protect the credibility of the vaccines, uh, so that they don't fail and crash six months to a year from now.
1: Yep, um, I mostly agree. I think <laughs> that um, I think that it's a question that is. I think it's a question that it is reasonable to ask, but it's an empirical question as to how effective a single dose would be for the reasons that Barry laid out. The problem is, in assert, if we assert that it is going to be more effective, that depends on some assumptions about how effective it will be and what it will do, which are not at the moment grounded in scientific evidence. We have evidence that the um, that a vaccination, you know, one dose followed by another twenty one days later provides a certain amount of immunity. Um, we don't have evidence. For one dose, without you know, without the follow-up dose, 21 days later, in the absence of that evidence, I think that's problematic. However, collecting the evidence, perhaps in a trial, is not an unreasonable thing to do. But once we have collected the evidence from the trial, then we would be in a position that would be more, um, then we would be in a better position to be able to make those kind of recommendations. And as Barry said, it's hard enough getting people, um, get, you know, it's hard enough getting some people in for one vaccine dose. Um, and once you start saying to people, well, maybe you don't need two vaccine doses, then a certain proportion of people will not take up the vaccine dose in the first place. And so a lot of this is to do with um, public health messaging and preserving confidence within the vaccines.
0: Do you have a follow-up question? Uh, no, I don't. Thank you so much. Great. Uh, next question. Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, a couple quick questions. Both of them are about pursuing population level herd immunity through vaccination. Um, The first is about um, children. So just from a a crude numbers standpoint, if children and teens make up some 20% of the population, I'm I'm curious how the U.S. would ever approach 70 or 80% uh, vaccine coverage that that would be desired to push toward herd immunity. I'm curious whether your understanding is that realistically we, we really won't ever reach these levels until children are also being vaccinated or if I'm miscalculating in some way. Um, Second related question is just about the speed at which society would need to pursue herd immunity through vaccination. Um, I know you commented on this a little bit, but I'm curious as we go into 2021, if we were to approach 30, 40, 50% vaccine coverage across the country. If people are skeptical of the vaccine and they're, they're dragging their feet, is there a valid concern that immunity could even sort of wane in those who have been vaccinated before the virus can really be run into the ground? I'm wondering if there's a speed factor here in terms of getting everybody covered quickly.
1: And I think the first comment I would make about this is that I think it's extremely unlikely that we would be able to eradicate this virus. We have only successfully eradicated one virus, which had a particular set of properties that made it amenable to eradication, and that's smallpox. We have been struggling with polio for decades. Um, um, partially, perhaps, some of the reasons of vaccine effectiveness that Barry was talking about. Um, but we'll do not get into here? So I think that in reality, we have to accept that it is not likely that we are going to be able to eradicate the virus. However, we should be able to get to a point where we are going to be able to live without it you know, markedly damaging our lives or leading to surges which damage healthcare or a large excess of mortality. That, I think, is what we'll be seeking to achieve. And that will start to be achieved when we start getting up to a reasonable fraction of the population. You, you said 50 to 70%. I mean, those are, um, I will point out, relatively... I mean, it's not that they are wrong, but they're the results of the simplest models. It may be a little bit lower than that, somewhere around 50% that we would need to vaccinate to achieve sort of effective vaccination levels of immunity um, before we were able to, you know, be able to go about our lives without the risk of catastrophic outbreaks of this. I think that the question of waning immunity in groups which could lead to potential resurgences and, indeed, whether or not infections within those groups are like they were before, because it may well be the case that with waning immunity, you can be infected, but you're very unlikely to have mild symptoms, is going to be the sort of thing that we're going to be studying for quite a long time to come.
2: Um, I, I agree with everything that uh, Bill said. Let me take on the the children's issue. Um, Children represent something on the order of 1% of all deaths from COVID and a smaller percentage than any other age group of disease. So in contrast to influenza, where kids and old people are the major victims of that disease, uh, there is uh, some lesser urgency of getting children vaccinated than it might otherwise be. Second point with respect to kids is kids cannot give informed consent, so you, the idea of testing vaccines on a population that doesn't know what's happening to them and has not given any consent, but depends on parental consent, um, who represent a population of adults that have a fair amount of skepticism about all vaccines, but particularly a new one being tested on their kids, The decision was made, and I support that decision. I testified in front of uh, ACIP at an earlier meeting that I don't think that you could test uh, a vaccine that wasn't shown to be safe and effective in adults for the first time in children without knowing that. And if I were a parent, I would have a lot of concerns about doing that. Having said that, the minute that that vaccine was approved, as being as safe and effective as we know it could be, and knowing that there are as many children dying or almost as many children dying, even though that's a small number of COVID as with influenza in current years, um, I would be and am keen to have trials begin on kids, and they are beginning from both of the two vaccines we've heard of and my guess is from the other vaccines as well. And there, the problem is a little complicated in that kids are not adults. They don't necessarily respond either to adverse effects or um, protective immune responses as effectively as adults. And that means that there are age groups at which the vaccine may have to be used at a lower dose. And that requires trials to ascertain whether as you drop the dose of the vaccine to ensure safety at younger and younger ages, you get the same degree of protective antibodies, which by itself means it will take more time to work out the conditions to vaccinate kids. So that I think that everybody is keen to be able to bring the vaccines down to protect children, both to protect them per se, And since we know kids can transmit, protect them from transmitting for uh, extended family members uh, with whom they may be in contact. But I don't think you test an unknown vaccine in terms of safety and effectiveness on kids until you're pretty sure it's not going to do them any harm. And I am pleased that both companies have started to think about testing kids bringing the ages down from 16 from 18 to 16 in the case of Pfizer, and we'll bring it down to 12 in the case of Pfizer, a a little higher in the case of Moderna, but carefully bringing it down to lower age groups. In terms of herd immunity, we vaccinate something like uh, 160 million doses of vaccines a year are given to kids and adults in this country. We know how to get the vaccine to kids a lot more effectively than we do to adults. So if, as Bill said, this becomes a, um, uh, a an endemic infection that we need, and immunity doesn't last lifelong, which I think uh, with an RNA vaccine is extremely unlikely, um, it means that we're in a circumstance that we will need to be vaccinated every year, every two years, every five years. We don't know. Um, and that means we could put a safe and effective appropriate dose childhood vaccine at the appropriate stage in childhood um, and get that to every 94% or 80 to 94% of all kids, uh, which we do for other vaccines. So that's why I think kids have to be last on the list for testing an unknown vaccine.
0: Thank you. Um... We have one more question, I believe. Um, could you both stick around for about another five minutes or so? Would
1: that be possible? Yeah, I do have another meeting, but it's, um, but I, um, I can wait for five.
4: Okay. Hi, thank you so much for taking this call. So, um, there was a strong recommendation made in both of the advisory committee meetings um, to use a, a blinded crossover design in order to both meet the. Ethical concerns that that uh, patients be on the placebo, I'm sorry, volunteers on the placebo arm be able to get the vaccine and at the same time um, maintain the blind. The FDA has not required this of the companies and has left it for the companies to decide what they're going to do. Um, and neither company is apparently adopting that um, methodology. And I'm wondering if you have concerns about loss of. Uh, blinded data because of this? Or do you think that we can get enough information with how they're approaching it? Bill, do you
1: want to comment? I personally, I don't think I know enough about exactly how the trials were designed um, in order to be able to comment on this. Um, I would make the comment that hopefully there's going to be, um, we're going to be getting we, I, that hopefully we have enough information already to be making good decisions.
2: So the, the, the concern has to do with the fact that anyone in a clinical trial is free to withdraw from a clinical trial. Uh, that is autonomy, one of the cardinal ethical values of experimentation on human subjects. And with the availability of vaccines that uh, now and increasingly will show effectiveness. What happens if you're in a trial? You don't know whether you, the trials are blinding. You don't know whether you're in the placebo group or you're in the vaccine group. And if you're in the placebo group, you know you're at risk. And so um, there is, you know, every rational reason for people once there's a safe and effective vaccine, without knowing their status in the current trial as vaccine volunteers to pull out of the trial and say, I want a vaccine that's 95% protected. And they would have the right to do that, provided they are within the right category of uh, phases to be able to receive the vaccine. And that's been one of the recommendations that has been made, that um, yes, if you want to withdraw from the trial, there's no reason that you should be allowed to go to the head of the line before people uh, that are at higher risk of dying or have comorbid conditions are essential workers. Um, you would be able to do that. I think um, there are two things going for uh, the efforts to keep people in trials. Even in a crossover trial where everybody has vaccine, you lose data only if people withdraw from the trial. And so the intent here would be, yes, you would have the ability to um, find or get another vaccine as long as in the trial, we know what you've had, but we would like to follow you for two years, which would add enormous amounts more data um, if you have chosen to get a vaccine. And if you are committed enough as all these volunteers were, to uh, risk your life to take a vaccine for the benefit of knowledge and protecting everyone else, many of those people will stick it out if they're not in high-risk groups and we will be able to get uh, long-term data. What the proposal for the um, crossover studies would have been, would, this could have all been planned in advance, anticipating the problem so that the statistics would have been there Uh, enabling people at the appropriate time to uh, cross over and take a new vaccine and stay within the trial, uh, rather than have people randomly at random times withdraw at whatever time they felt like it. Um, It's unfortunate, but that proposal was not on the table as far as I'm aware at the time that these trials were originally designed. But I think the major point I would like to make is whether people uh, withdraw Uh, from the randomization um, and get another vaccine or get the vaccine dose um, and unblind themselves, it would be really great if they stayed in the trial that will enable us, since everybody at that point would have had a vaccine, to learn something more quickly about the safety of the vaccine.
4: Just in a real quick follow-up, I mean, why not just require that blinded crossover now? Everybody would get the vaccine, and as you said, we'd have enormous amounts of data that could be followed. Right. So the answer to the companies is you have 45,000 people
2: um, in the vaccinated groups and an equal number of people in the control groups. They're randomized. The companies are not uh, privy to who they are. And there would be absolutely no way in a practical sense to randomize 45,000 people while you're trying to get everything else done on the the trial. So it's very difficult once the genie is out of the bottle to go randomize uh, and and deal with individuals out of a uh, 45,000 group or 50,000 group or 60,000 group uh, in the two vaccine trials and actually get this done simultaneously. Um, It's it's just practically unfeasible. Could have been done in the beginning.
4: Thank
0: you. Um, I think that's it for our questions. Uh, Dr. Boom, do you have any other comments before we close out the call?
2: No, I thank you for uh, wonderful questions. Um, This is gonna be a challenging six months, both because of the disease and what I would predict would be a change from a huge amount of skepticism to a increase in demand for vaccines that the supply will not allow to be met, and pressures on every state government of people finding way, trying to find ways to get their uh, uh, subgroup preferential treatment to get vaccines, which is going to be challenging. The integrity and credibility of the system unless we're absolutely open and transparent uh, and stick to guidelines and not uh allow people uh to jump the line
1: yeah i would um i think that's a very 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 great point that barry just made um i'm gonna close with an observation that i'm I obviously did a very good job explaining what happened with the what's happened with the new variant in the uk um but i want to point out that given that it's already in australia italy iceland and denmark um it's quite probable that it is already in the united states as well um, those places which have detected it are those that have good systems for this kind of surveillance which the united states does not have really at all so um I think, in fact, if something like that had arisen in the United States, it might be quite hard to detect, depending on which part of the country it had happened in. So um, I'm sure we can expect to hear more of it in the coming weeks.
0: This concludes the December 22nd press conference.